I, Greg Burtnett, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of my office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. I swore this a little over two years ago. I'm wondering, just by raise of hand, who has here sworn something very similar to that? Many of you have. They changed the, the second half of the paragraph a little differently. But uh, actually, look out, and almost most of you have done that. Praise Jesus. Why? Why? Why would you do that? Why would you add to your responsibilities? Well, I mean, I have several reasons. I did it because I was assuming an office here in Santa Maria because I love my community and because I love my Lord Jesus and I want people around here in Santa Maria to know that I love Jesus and I love my community. Some of you did it because you love your country. Some of you did it because Uncle Sam told you to or because you needed a job. I understand that as well. But when you get down to it, as Christians, we should love our nation and we should take oaths seriously. God does. And we find not exactly the same thing, but we find something similar going on here in Philippians. Last week, we came to the heart of the book of Philippians. Every major theme found in this brief letter is found in this paragraph. And no, I can't tackle them all because we're going to spend the rest of Philippians doing those topics. But I may come back to this paragraph more than once. And the essential command we find in this paragraph is the command, live as citizens. It is one way of expressing the big idea that I gave to Paul's letter several weeks ago. Because Jesus is Lord, press on with one mind together, rejoicing as you face struggles and opposition while sharing the good news. Now, if we if live as citizens is the essential command of this paragraph, the controlling qualifier for that command is worthy. Live worthy as citizens. And last week we had much to say about avoiding the debtor's ethic and we sought to undo this legalistic misconception of Christianity by reminding us to rely on the God who gives strength to our resolves. And we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.11 that God gives strength to our resolves. And then we noted this. It is not enough to say that God is not mad at you for missing your quiet time today. That is true enough. But the whole truth includes the idea that if you are one who belongs to Jesus, if you are one who has surrendered to Him, if you are one who calls yourself by the name of Christ, then what are you doing if you're not resolving and carrying out your resolve to read Scripture every single day? You should want to, is my point here. 
Now, if you praise Jesus for the grace that he will not condemn you for missing a day in his word, you are on safe ground. I stand by that. Praise Jesus. God didn't throw a lightning bolt at me today because I missed in my quiet time. Right? If you presume upon God's grace and ignore his word, you don't resolve to strive to know him better so that you will love him and trust him more, then you may not be a Christian. Again, a shorter, more memorable way of noting this truth is to say, to live worthy of the good news of Christ is to live as citizens of heaven by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. And so tonight, we come again to be more exact by looking closely at the context that Paul taught this concept of living as citizens. If you ever want to know what a verse or even a word means in the New Testament, then make sure you take seriously the paragraph you find it in and the one or two paragraphs near it. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. The Apostle Paul writes to us, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We will break this passage in half so we can unpack what Paul wants us to know about living worthy of the good news. So let's do exactly that again. Verses 27 and 28. Listen to the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, this living worthy, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Last fall I went to a preacher's conference, and one of the things that the person up there speaking was, said, pastors, it is your responsibility to prepare your people for persecution. Be prepared. This is, Paul is not speaking idle words here. And you're living worthy because you know and then trust the promises of God for you in Christ is the living worthy that will be a sign to those who oppose Christ of their destruction, but of your salvation. Boy, that's preaching. So let's get back. Let's get back to that's meddling. Let's get back to preaching, right? 
Once again, we begin with the central command of the paragraph, which we touched upon last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You will remember this slide from last week. And in the ESV, the Greek word polytutheste, say that five times fast, which would normally be translated conduct yourselves as citizens, is simplified here to give the idea that it was meant to convey. And the idea that it was meant to convey is live, let your manner of life, let the way you live your life be worthy. And now we find, again, by looking at the context of Philippians, that the citizenship Paul points out in chapter 1 is expanded in chapter 3. And we find in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Which is why the big idea last week was to live worthy of the good news of Christ, is to live as citizens of heaven by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. Which, of course, begs the question what do I mean by saying by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us? What, what does that mean? Now, for a number of reasons, we've accustomed ourselves to thinking of grace as merely unmerited favor. What is grace? Oh, grace is unmerited favor. But what does that mean? What is unmerited favor? Well, it means an undeserved gift. Okay, that helps, I guess, a little bit. But a gift of what? And here is where it gets important. A gift of God at work in you and through you and for you. God's grace is God's power at work in you to accomplish his purposes quite apart from anything you deserve. We should be a couple of slides past that. There we go. Now, I need God's power at work in me. I need to change, (laughs) ask my wife. I need to become more like Christ. And every single one of us here needs to take that next step so that we become more like Jesus. But I also need God's power to work through me. I need God to work in those near me. And I need God to show my near ones that Jesus is alive in me. Because I need them to see that Christ is working through me because that's why we're here. I took the volunteer position in the city because I want people to know that Jesus is alive and well and he's working in this town. But then I also need God's power to work for me. I need circumstances around me to bless me and I need to know that they are for my good and not for my harm even if I don't like them. Now, all of this can be done only by God's powerful acts in me and through me and for me. All of these acts are those things that He promises to do for His people in His Word. For example, do you need to forgive somebody? Well, then you need God to work in you and through you and for you. Do you need power to pay attention so you can understand your Bible? You need 
God to work in you and through you and for you? Do you need to fight temptation? You need God to work in you and through you and for you. Do you need to share the love of Jesus with someone? You need God to work in you and through you and for you. Do you need God to heal you or someone who is near you? Then you need God to work in you and through you and for you. Do you need your circumstances to change? Perhaps. But what you need is God to work in you and through you and for you. And in each case, you need Jesus to do it quite apart from anything you might deserve. That's grace. So here's the secret. The secret is if you need something, then go to God's word and you Ask Him to work in you and through you and for you by finding a promise. Now, as Benji rightly pointed out today, that doesn't necessarily include you winning the lottery. But when you do go to His Word and you do find promises, then His Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, will reveal to you how they apply in your life. Now, He may do that simply through you reading His Word on your own. He may do it through a preacher. He may do it through a friend having coffee at a local shop. And in this case... The promise that he will hear your prayer may be one of the most important. Because when you go to him and you leave your burden with him, the promises that he is here, hears you, that he is with you, whether you hear yes to your request or not. And his power will enable you in body and in spirit to live worthy of his calling on your life in the good news. But now we come back to the immediate context and we once again bump into this word worthy. And we look at it to see what was in Paul's mind as he commanded us to live worthy of the good news. And he says in verse 27... Live worthy so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The primary thing Paul teaches us will exemplify a life lived worthy is that we stand firm. Now, I have to note that the commentators are split in their understanding of this particular passage. There, there, there's a question. Is there just one application of this living worthy, namely stand firm in the Spirit, that has two kind of parts to it? In other words, we stand firm by striving and by not being frightened? Or is this three separate ideas? In other words, the life lived worthy is stand firm, strive together, and do not be frightened. I don't know, really, to be honest, the six of one and a half dozen the other. The ESV, by their translations, the editors think that living worthy has one idea. Stand firm. 
And then how do we stand firm? Well, we do it by striving together for the gospel and by not being frightened. And usually I default to the ESV unless I have a really good reason not to. So let's see, let's unpack this. The living worthy of the good news is that we are standing firm in one spirit. Fair enough. The unity of the believers, the body of Christ, is so important in the New Testament that it really is a shame on us that there are so many divisions. I'm not going to go into why there's divisions. I'm not going to go into when should you divide, when shouldn't you. That's not really the point. But the point, I think, here for us is that the overall teaching of the New Testament and the importance of being unified, standing firm together, should give us pause when we consider whether or not we should separate from Bible-believing and Christ-honoring brothers and sisters. But then we have to ask the question, What is it we are to be unified in? Are we to believe everything exactly the same? And I would say certainly not. Actually, I think God likes diversity. My friend who used to be, until he retired, the associate pastor at the Foursquare Church, believes things that I don't. But we can stand unified because we know what the important things are. And Paul fortunately lays out for us one very good explanation of what those important things are. And he starts with one mind. And one mind does not mean that we agree on every single jot and tittle. One mind means that we have one purpose. Paul defines what that purpose is here. He says, striving for the faith of the good news. We'll get to that. But notice furthermore, that this unity of mind is a gift of God. Now that is absolutely crucial, that this unity is a gift. So, how do I take that? Well, number one, it's not something that you earn. Instead, number two, as you get closer God to God, you will also get closer to your brothers and sisters who are also pursuing hard after God. The things that you disagree about will be less important. Or you'll find out, oh, you know what? You were right about this. Or you were right about that. And as you grow closer to God, you will grow closer to your brothers. But he continues with one mind striving. And the emphasis here is Christianity is not a floating religion. Christianity is not about sitting on a little blow up with your, you know, whatever kind of drink they drink on a, on a boat would be. You know, it, that's not Christianity. You cannot simply float through life if you are to be a Christian. You're not floating on a little blow-up toy for your kids. You are swimming upstream all your life or else you will find out that whatever else you were, you might not have been Christian. Again, The emphasis here is not on perfection. We are not preaching legalism here. The emphasis is on striving, which is what Paul emphasizes over and over. But 
he continues, with one mind striving for the faith of the good news. Now the good news we understand, we'll get to it in chapter 3, and we'll spend quite a bit of time there. But the good news is that although we deserve to be enemies of God, he has changed us and he has made us instead into members of our family, of his family. But what does it mean, what does he mean by the faith? One thing Christians must remember is that our faith is a propositional faith. We believe certain propositions. We believe that there are statements of facts about God. There are statements of facts about the world. There are statements of facts about us that are either true or false. We are a propositional religion. And this moral knowledge, may surprise you, is widely rejected in the world about us. The world about us doesn't want to know that Jesus is Lord. They don't want to know that lust is adultery of the heart and therefore sin. Nevertheless, while God, for his good reasons, allow us to ignore him at this point in history, these facts carry eternal weight, and we must strive together to stand true to these facts. We must live as if they are true ourselves, and then we must help people near us to understand the truth of them as well. We must help those near us to feel the weight of these truths, by our own attitudes and actions. And when we do this, when we stand firm for the faith of the good news, the people near us will either love us or they will hate us. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 2. Though through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me. It's probably going to surprise you that I say this, but you know, that's a scary idea. What? people are going to think we smell like death? That's what it says. It's scary to put ourselves out there standing up for a child's right to birth. Just listen to the absurdity of that statement. I can't go that way this tonight. So Paul continues. Because he knows it's scary, he continues and he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Standing firm for the good news includes the idea of not being afraid of those who oppose Christ. But it's scary. Unrighteous people are in power. And unrighteous people are in power in both parties. Neither party in our nation has a monopoly on wickedness and selfishness and hatred towards God. Neither party in our nation has a monopoly on wickedness. So, no matter which party you belong to, you will face those who hate you because to them you smell like death. Now, for those of you who have smelled death, 
surprises me when I say that to people and they don't know what I'm talking about. Death has a very distinctive odor. It's disgusting. I just had another whiff of it a couple weeks ago. We saw a sea lion dead on the beach. It was gross. But if you have something dead in your house, you are going to be that thing's enemy until it is gone. Right? Right? You want it out of your house. So it doesn't surprise me that it's becoming more and more fashionable to hate those who hold to a Christian worldview. Preacher, prepare your people for persecution. We remind them that the knowledge of God is real. The knowledge of God that they so ardently want to avoid. Which is why Paul says exactly this. This, this being, this walking worthy of God by His grace, by His power at work in you and through you and for you. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I get people periodically, just happened to me two weeks ago. One of the guys at the gym that I go to found out that I'm a pastor and he was like, oh. He literally backed up. Literally backed up when he found out that I was a pastor. Oh, you're one of them. You know why? Because he cusses in every sentence. And I think that he was thinking, oh, well, I shouldn't be cussing in front of him. Now, I didn't say this. I did not say this. But, you know, if he had said something, I would say, brother, you don't have to worry about offending me. I'm not the one you need to worry about. Amen? Amen. I'm not going to judge him for cussing. I grew up with a sailor as a dad, and I still... 30-some years later, cussed way too much in my head. Yes, that was a confession. You can hate me or love me if you want. We smell like death. And you can see from this paragraph how it reflects the big idea of the entire letter. Because Jesus is Lord... Press on with one mind together, rejoicing as you face struggles and opposition while sharing the good news of Jesus. So Paul continues in the second half of this paragraph. He's no longer concerned about defining what it means to live a life worthy of the good news. But instead, he tells you that the Lord has given you two gifts He's given you two gifts so that you can engage in this struggle to live a worthy life. Let's look with them together in verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What are these two gifts that Paul reminds us of? Belief, trusting in the promises of God, and suffering. I feel like Tevier. God, couldn't you choose someone else? With belief and suffering, we will be able to successfully navigate the conflict Paul tells us is in our future. 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says in 2 Timothy. The suffering Paul takes for granted. And he takes it for granted that this suffering will be for our own good. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Now, to believe that statement. To actually believe that Paul is telling you the truth here is an example of what it means to repent. Fully turning from the worldview that is compressing us to embracing the right of the personal creator, king of the universe to dispose of us any way he wants to. That is what it means to change your mind. That is what it means to repent. That is what it means then to trust the promises of God for you in Christ. And this is so important because you can only come to receive this statement only by the grace of God. You can't come up with it on your own. But once you have received it, it takes constant reminding and recommitting because we are so easily carried away by forgetfulness. We need to be reminded. We need to recommit because it is so easy for us to be carried away by forgetfulness. That's why belief is a virtue in Scripture. We must, by God's grace, continually go to His Word and remind ourselves what we believe. And given the world around us, that is a hard task. Amen? That's why we need to be given the gift of belief. It is grace. It is God's power at work in us and through us and for us so that God's purposes, His kingdom purposes will be brought to bear through you and in you and for you. So we are given the gift of belief and we are given the gift of suffering. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Whatever it was that the Philippians saw Paul suffer, we don't really know. I mean, he was in prison at least. Whatever it was that the Philippians saw Paul suffer, evidently they also saw Paul responding well to that suffering. They saw him trusting his Lord to know what is best for him and that through this suffering he lived worthy of the good news of Christ. Now examples like this, how we ought to live to pursue godliness are all around you. Open your eyes. Listen to stories of men fainting on the way to this supermarket to get something to drink because they've been fasting and praying. Find out what makes that guy tick. Find out what makes the person tick who continually serves those who can't serve themselves? They're in this room. Find out what makes them tick. How is it that they can engage in this suffering continually, giving their money and their time? Find out what makes them tick. And what you'll find is God's power to accomplish His kingdom purposes in you and through you and for you. Furthermore, you can find examples like this in God's Word. The point is to open your eyes so that you and I will find God faithful and so that you and I will find God find us faithful as we live 
worthy of the good news, living as citizens of the heaven by the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. Oaths, like the one I took a couple of years ago, were common in the Old Testament times. In fact, they're so common, God warned his people on multiple occasions, don't take oaths lightly. Be concerned that if you take an oath, you come through on it. Now again, I'm not saying that that's what this passage is telling us to do. However, we are to live as citizens, not of any country you were born in. We are to live citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would, by your grace, by your power at work in us and through us and for us to accomplish your purposes, I pray that we would, in fact, live worthy of the good news of Jesus and that you would give us the grace that we need, Lord, to know you better and therefore love you and trust you more in Jesus' name. Amen.